The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Tonight, I want to bring to you a word out of Luke chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Luke chapter 1. The title of my message for you this evening is Christmas through Mary's eyes. Christmas through Mary's eyes. You know, it was so cute seeing all these kids up here. And one thing about children is when you're a kid, everything about Christmas is absolutely magical. You know, you get the tree all set up. If you've got the fake tree or the living tree, it's a a raging debate, but you set the tree up with all the lights and then the presents go under it. And when I was growing up, we had different Christmas traditions. In fact, every year on Christmas Eve in Westwood, which is the neighborhood I grew up in, not far from here, um, the the people in the neighborhood would all take uh, paper bags and they would fill them with sand and they would light the, the candles and stick it in these brown paper bags and we would drive through the neighborhood and it was just it was magical and that's how it is when you're a kid you know you've got the elf on the shelf and the the fat man in the red suit and the sleigh and all the rest but as you get older things start to change a little bit yes the the magic is still there but a little bit of the shine gets worn down because there's some stress that comes along with this season there are financial considerations There are work obligations that need to be juggled and a host of various other commitments that have to be considered. And it can all become a lot. So whenever that starts to happen to me, I just get stressed out by by Christmas. One of the things I've found helpful is to try to climb into my kids' shoes and view the season through their lens or see things through their eyes. And it can be really helpful to start seeing through the eyes of a child It goes a long way towards helping remember what Christmas is all about. And in the same way, similar to that, every time I go back to the original Christmas and I see it through the lens and through the eyes of those who were there on that first Christmas, something powerful happens in my heart. And that's important because why? We're so familiar with this story. We've read it a thousand times. We revisit it every single year at this time. And if we're not careful, we can become numb to its potency and its power. And so I like to go back and, and look at the story from the various angles that were given in the gospel records, whether it's looking at Christmas through the eyes of the shepherds who looked up into the sky and saw a heavenly host break into song, proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Or maybe it's the, the, the story of the wise men who see this astronomical anomaly in the heavens and they followed his star and they came bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh that they laid down at the feet of their king. Or perhaps we look at the story of Joseph and we see Christmas through his eyes and he has his own unique perspective and story to tell about that first Christmas. And yet... Well, all of those stories are wonderful and all of those perspectives are unique in their own way. When it comes to that first Christmas, no more, no, nobody's story is more intimate or personal than Mary's. And so today what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to look at Christmas through Mary's eyes. Let's go ahead and begin reading there in verse 26 of Luke 1. Here's how it happened. 
In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So we have here this incredible encounter wherein this angel named Gabriel finds his way into the home of Mary to make this announcement. Now, let me just say this. Angels are these luminous, glorious, magnificent creatures that we see throughout the Bible. And we know there are different rankings of angels and they hold different positions and bear different responsibilities. There are archangels, there are seraphim, there are cherubim who surround the throne of God and worship him day and night. The Bible also talks about guardian angels. Each one of us has our very own guardian angel. Maybe some of you have more than one, like you need the extra help and protection, but we all have at least one guardian angel. In fact, the Bible tells us to be careful when we entertain strangers because some have entertained angels unaware. Amazing. And so there are these various kinds of angels that hold different offices. And yet, while the Bible has a lot to say about angels, we're only given the names of two of them. (laughs) One is Michael. Michael is an archangel, and he seems to be a warrior angel. And when he shows up in Scripture, he shows up in those kinds of contexts. And the other angel that we're given the name of is Gabriel, who we see here. And Gabriel's role, as it would appear from Scripture, is that of a messenger. Every time Gabriel shows up, he has some big, important announcement to make. For instance, way back in the book of Daniel, it's Gabriel who shows up and unveils God's plan and the revelation of end times to God's beloved prophet Daniel. And here we find him in a familiar role delivering important news. And this time, the recipient of this very important message is this young peasant girl named Mary. And the news that he was giving her was that she was about to become the mother of the Messiah. Now, of all the women who have ever lived, only one could be chosen to bring the Savior of the world into existence. Every young Jewish girl, no doubt, longed to be the honored recipient of this message, but it could only be given to one, and it was given to Mary. And and so the question is, why? Why was she chosen? I mean, if you think about it, God could have chosen anyone to be the mother of his son, Jesus. So why did he choose Mary? If you think about it, when you go to apply for a job, there's always different questions that are asked and and they want to know if you're proficient in different areas. And then there's usually a part of the application where a question gets asked something like this. What is it that makes you uniquely qualified for this position to which you're applying? And what I want to do is what if we took that question and we applied it to Mary? And as we do that, I'm afraid on paper, her resume is not that impressive. For one thing, she's a young girl, probably somewhere between the ages of 13 and 16 years old. Think about that. Just a young girl. Life was hard back then and people didn't live as long and so they tended to get married much earlier. We don't know who Mary's parents were, but we do know they were nobody special. So Mary's just an average teenager from an average ordinary family. We also know that she was poor. 
We know that because when she and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to have him circumcised, they were also required by law to bring an offering or a sacrifice with them. And and typically the offering you were called to give was that of a lamb. However, a condition was made for in the law whereby you could bring two doves or two pigeons if you were too poor and couldn't afford a lamb. When Mary and Joseph went to the temple, they brought the doves, thus indicating that they were poor. They couldn't afford the typical sacrifice. The other thing we learn about Mary here in verse 26 is that she's from a town called Nazareth. Now, what you need to know about Nazareth is it wasn't the most desirable zip code in Israel. It was a town that was kind of on the wrong side of the tracks, if you will. If you were from Nazareth, it wasn't anything to brag about. It was a small town in the northern part of Israel, and it had a less than stellar reputation. Years later, when Nathaniel was told that we found the Messiah and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, here was Nathaniel's response. Some of you will recall this from John 1. He said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Evidently, calling someone a Nazarene in those days was equivalent to calling someone like a hillbilly or perhaps a a, a country bumpkin in our modern vernacular. And so that colors the picture. It it fills in this composite sketch of Mary, who she was, where she came from. And the picture that emerges is less than impressive. She's an ordinary girl from an ordinary place with ordinary parents. And yet, profoundly, this is who God picks to bring his son into the world. And I think in choosing her, God is telling us something important about himself. I want to read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27 together out loud with you. It's in your notes. He says this. Let's read it out loud. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. When it comes to the kinds of qualities and characteristics that God is looking for, we're immediately struck by the fact that he goes by a different set of criteria. You see, he's far more interested in availability than he is in ability. God has a long history throughout Scripture of using ordinary people, just like Mary, to accomplish his extraordinary plans and purposes in this world. And I just make mention of that for those of you who feel like you're not the kind of person that God would use. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not rich enough. You're not liked enough. You're not known enough. You're not blank enough. Let's remember that while Mary lacked the qualities this world says a person needs in order to be considered great, she possessed other qualities that caused her to stand out in the eyes of the Lord. And we're going to look at some of those in the remainder of our study tonight. So this angel comes to Mary And notice in verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words, and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. That's a good thing to say when you're an awesome angel. I mean, every time an angel shows up in scripture, they always have to be like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Why? Because they're incredible creatures. 
So he says, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? Let's talk for a minute or two about Mary's question, and you can fill that in. That's the first fill in the blank in our outline this evening, this question that Mary asks. And her question comes in response to what Gabriel tells her. And here we have the heart of his message, that she's about to conceive in her womb a baby, but not just any baby. Her child would be called the son of the highest, and that he would be take the throne of David's kingdom, and of his kingdom there would be no end. As we read on a few verses later, he will go on to tell Mary that the, the child she's about to bear will be called the son of of God. And he gives her his name. The name that she is to call this child is Jesus. It was a common name back then. Many children running around were called Jesus. And, and it is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. And so embedded within Jesus' very name is the heart of his mission. Jesus came to save. And so after he lives his life, Jesus' name takes on a whole new meaning. And for those of us who are Christ followers, his name it rings with salvation itself. It is the name above every other name. But Mary doesn't understand any of that. She's overwhelmed by what she hears. I mean, put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Imagine you're hearing this news for the very first time. I mean, that's a lot for anybody to process, let alone a teenage girl. Mary must have had a million questions rattling around in her mind. But the only one she asks is, in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And here was Gabriel's response. Look at verse 35. The angel, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. and The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who said, was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Everybody just say amen to that. <clears throat> no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. We've talked about Mary's question. How can this be? Now let's land on this next point in our outline. Let's talk for a moment about Mary's faith. This is where the Bible gets into the how of the incarnation. Now, incarnation is just a big fancy theological term that is used to describe this event in which God became a man. And Gabriel's answer, you'll notice, was short on details. He's brief in his response about how it was going to happen. He basically told her, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and, and the shadow of the Almighty will come over you and will overshadow you and, and then you'll be pregnant. <laughs> That's angels speak for, it's going to be a miracle. You're just going to have to trust me. The word overshadowed there, it's interesting. That's the same word that is used to describe the cloud that came down and rested on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. 
It's the same word that is used in the New Testament to describe the cloud that hovered over the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured in the eyes of Peter, James, and John. And it's a word that describes the very manifestation of God's glory. And in some incomprehensible, mysterious way, God would come down and Mary was found to be pregnant with the Savior. Now, many people find this part of the story particularly hard to swallow. I'm reminded of a a story I heard about a little boy who had questions, important questions, about where babies came from. And so he went into his mom one day and said, Mom, where did I come from? And so she answered it, as any mother would, with the truth. She said, you know, a stork came and flew and, and dropped you off. You were a little bundle and laid you down at our front porch. Okay. He goes into the next room and he asks his grandma, Grandma, where did mom come from? And she delivered to him some variation of the same story, including a stork dropping her off at the front door. And and when he asked grandma, where did you come from? She again answered in a similar manner. After that, the boy boy scurried outside where he found his friend. He said, boy, you're not going to believe it. There hasn't been a normal birth in our family in three generations. (laughs) Turns out he knew a little more than he was letting on. But you know as well as I do, every birth is miraculous. Amen. Every child that comes into this world is a gift from God. And yet the Bible gives us several accounts of unusual birth stories. Things were outside the norm. For example, Abraham and Sarah were given a child in their old age. I think she was 90 and he was 100 years old when Isaac was born to them. That's not normal. That's unusual. Any 90 plus year olds in here getting ready to have children? Okay. So that's outside the norm even to this day. We find similar stories. Hannah was considered barren until the Lord opened her womb. And so too with Mary's cousin Elizabeth. She was in her 60s when she conceived John the Baptist. And so all these births were unusual, but none of them hold a candle to the miraculous birth of Jesus who came to Mary, who was a virgin. Now, why was Jesus born to a virgin? Why is that significant? Well, there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, It fulfilled an ancient prophecy. Some 700 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah predicted the manner in which the Messiah was to be born. In fact, I want to read that prophecy together with you out loud. This is Isaiah 7, 14. Let's read it together. It's in your notes. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That name, Emmanuel, is a title for the Messiah. It means God with us. God would come and inhabit flesh and bones and take up residence here on earth. And God says, you're going to know it's me because I'm going to come through a virgin. And so that would make this birth singularly unique. But there's another reason why the virgin birth was essential. And it's because it made possible the uniting of full divinity and full humanity within one person. You see, Jesus had to embrace everything that it is to be human. But he also had to be fully divine in order to accomplish the work of salvation and redeem humanity from the curse. You say, I don't get it. Join the club. (laughs) I mean, neither do I. You don't have to understand it 
to believe it. And you heard me say last weekend when I preached on the wise men and the star, if you can get past Genesis 1-1 where it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then the rest of the Bible is a cakewalk. You shouldn't have any problems believing anything because if God can do that, then he can do all things. Amen? Most of you are familiar with the name Larry King, a famous, you know, interviewer and TV host. So all kinds of interesting people over the course of his career. Well, one time he was asked the question, you know, the interviewer gets interviewed and he's asked the question, if you could select any one person across all of history to interview, who would it be? And he responded, well, I would want to interview Jesus Christ. Great answer, by the way. And then he was asked, what would you like to ask him? And here's what Larry King replied. He said, and I quote, I'd ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me, end quote. You know, he's right in saying that. If Jesus truly was virgin born, then it forever settles the question of whether or not he is divine in his origin. Now, while I can't answer that question definitively and prove it to you by science right here and right now, I believe it by faith. Paul the Apostle put it like this in 1 Timothy 3.16. He said, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. Somehow, in ways that we can't begin to understand with our, you know, finite human minds, God became a single-celled organism within the womb of Mary. This is something that defies comprehension and should cause us to marvel. I love the way that Max Lucado, in his book, God Came Near, put it. And I just find this so beautiful. I want to read it to you. He said this. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God came near. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And I need you to marvel at that. It's incredible to think that of all the faces on the planet, that when when Mary looked down at the face of Jesus... She saw in him a reflection of her own face. My, I was reading, or listening rather, to my dad as he preached through Luke 1, and he pointed that out, and I was just struck by that thought. You know, of all the faces in heaven, there's one that w- will bear the resemblance of Jesus most acutely, and that is Mary's. Perhaps he has her eyes. There's some likeness there because he was formed in her womb. And to think that those little hands that she cradled in her own, those were the same hands that, according to Isaiah, once spanned the universe. The cries that came from his voice that that broke the silence of the night air there in Bethlehem, that was the same voice that spoke the cosmos into existence. And as she stared at his features and beheld his face, she was beholding the face of God. God came near. Why? in order that he might identify with you, that he might know what it's like. He's been tempted in all ways, just as you have. 
He's been there. He's done that. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to grieve. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to die. But he conquered the grave because he not only was fully human, he was at the same time fully God. And so we have in Jesus the perfect high priest who can lay hold of humanity with one hand and grab hold of heaven with the other and bridge the gap. This is what Mary is told in this moment. You're about to conceive in your womb the son of the highest. And what I love about her response is that when she hears this unbelievable news, She doesn't argue with the angel or contend with him, but she responds in humble faith. She says, I am your servant. May it be unto me according to your word. She believed him. Now, did she grasp the implications of what had just been shared with her? No way. Did she comprehend everything that the angel had just said? No, not at all. Not even a little bit. But she didn't let that stop her from saying yes to God. She believed that what God said he would do, he could do. And by the way, that's a perfect definition of faith. If you want to follow in Mary's footsteps, which I would encourage you to do, then that means laying hold of the promises that seem impossible and not letting go of them. You see, for Mary, we learned that you don't have to understand completely to obey immediately. She just gave God her yes. And so in response to the question I asked earlier, why Mary? What makes her so special? And again, I noted that she didn't possess some of the outward manifestations and characteristics that we might cling on to or, or hold up and, and, and would set her apart as unique or special. And yet she was available, she was humble, and she was faithful full, full of faith. And as it turns out, those are the kinds of qualities and characteristics that God was looking for and is still looking for. So she says, may it be unto me according to your word. And then at that time, verse 39, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. So the the angel leaves and Mary packs up and takes a long, arduous journey, about 70 miles or so, to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Why does she run away? Well, I can think of a few good reasons. For one, I'm guessing she was probably a little freaked out. She just had an angel burst into her room and tell her that she's pregnant with God. (laughs) At the same time, remember what we read earlier. She's betrothed to a young man in her village by the name of Joseph. Now, in that day and age... Marriages were contracts, contracted. They were arranged. And I used to hate this idea as a young person, my parents picking out, you know, who I would marry. But now I'm a parent. I like to think I would make a pretty good choice for my kids. Any other parents out there agree with me? I'm like, that's how it worked back then. And so, you know, I like your family. We, we enjoy barbecues together. You, you seem to have a daughter. I have a son. Let's, let's work it out. And you worked out the arrangements and bada bing, bada bang. They would be betrothed to one another. And and this was kind of similar to our engagement period. It might last for up to a year. But they were contractually already obligated to one another during this period, even though they hadn't consummated the marriage. And so if Mary is suddenly found to be pregnant during this espousal period, Joseph can not only 
divorce her, he can have her stoned. It was a, a, a capital offense in those days. So how's she supposed to tell Joseph or explain to him what's just happened? I can imagine, you know, the various versions of that imaginary conversation playing out in Mary's mind, right? Like, hey, Joe, so how was your day? Great. Can I tell you a little bit about mine? I had a most unusual experience. There was an angel and I'm pregnant, but don't worry because it's God. And, and so, you know, and she's thinking that's not going to go over well. <laughs> On top of telling him, she also had to figure out what she was going to say to her parents. No easy task. And then there was the community to worry about. Nazareth is a small town, probably about 500 people or so living there at the time of Jesus' birth. And, and so in small towns, word travels fast and, and it wouldn't be long before she started showing and everybody was knowing. And yet, while all of those are good reasons for her to skip town and make her way to Elizabeth's, I don't think that's the primary reason why she went. You see, I think Mary went to Elizabeth's house to confirm what the angel told her. Remember, he said, you're... Your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant. Now, if Mary goes and confirms that word, then perhaps that'll go a long way towards confirming all the other amazing things that the angel had spoken over her. And so she reaches Elizabeth's home. She gives her greeting, says hello. And it says in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. She was pregnant. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. I love this part of the story. All she has to say is hello, but she carries a presence with her. And the presence within her is so powerful that it shifts the atmosphere in the very room to the point where Elizabeth is now filled with the spirit and the baby inside her is awakened to the reality of that presence. Such is the power of the presence of God. And can I just remind you that you are a carrier of the presence. And, and that means when you walk into a room, it can change the atmosphere. It can invite the very fragrance of heaven. Mary models that for us when she walks in and says hello. Now here's what's interesting. Mary's newly pregnant, keep in mind. She wasn't showing yet, but somehow Elizabeth already knows. Before Mary even has a chance to tell her aunt about her angelic visitation or the word he'd spoken over her, the Holy Spirit already revealed it all to Elizabeth. And she cries out in, in this poetic kind of song-like blessing and calls Mary blessed among women and says, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord she recognizes that the baby in Mary is none other than her Lord. Keep in mind, Jesus is about this big at that moment. He's the size of a peanut. And yet Elizabeth, in an exclamation of great faith, already is calling him her Lord. That's staggering. Now, at this point, if Mary harbored any doubts before she arrived at Elizabeth's house, They've all vanished. They've melted away. And so she breaks out in her own song. And here's what I want to leave you with. This is the song of Mary. We've talked about Mary's question. We've considered Mary's faith. But now as we wrap up this view of the first Christmas through Mary's eyes, I want you to look at Mary's song. We find it in verse 
46, it says, and Mary said, more appropriately, perhaps Mary sang, she said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months. Then she returned home. Mary's song, you know, these verses give us a real window into Mary's heart. And the title, as I've mentioned above this section of scripture, in my Bible at least, gives it the title Mary's song. Although we can't say for certain that she broke forth in lyrical song. And yet there is something about the poetic nature of her words that they lend themselves to, they, have, they possess song-like qualities. And so this is called a song. It might better be described as a poem. And it's, it's only one of five such songs or poems that you find in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel alone. After 400 years of a pregnant pause in which the voice of God had not been heard, there was, there was this, this selah, if you will, this musical pause where there was no prophetic unction, there was no scripture that was given, there were no prophecies that were given in that intertestimonial, intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and this moment in Luke's gospel. And God bursts forth back onto the stage with singing. And it's the angels that are singing. It's Elizabeth who is singing. It's Zechariah who is singing. And here it is Mary who is singing. Now our Catholic friends know this passage of scripture as the Magnificat, Magnificat. And that word, it's the Latin word for magnify. And it comes directly out of the first line of this song, where in my NIV version, it says, I glorify the Lord. But in the King James version, it's I magnify the Lord. And certainly, as we dissect this song, we find it to be a song that, that magnifies the Lord. This is the heart of all true worship. God is the grand theme and central focus of Mary's praise. And we know that. Because there are no less than 20 references, both direct and indirect references to God in her song. She praises him eight times for what he has done and another 12 times for who he is. And again, I just stress the point that our praise, it is born out of a heart that recognizes who God is and what he has done for me. And so she magnifies the Lord. Now, when you magnify something, I want to just tease that word apart a little bit. To magnify something, perhaps you think of a magnifying glass where you take something that is small and you enlarge it, or perhaps a microscope where you take something that is tiny and microscopic and you make it bigger, a small thing, and make it bigger. And that's one form of magnification. But consider this. You can also use a mag uh, magnification to take something that is large but distant and to bring it near. We do this with a telescope, right? 
where we take these stars that are just little pinpricks of light in the nighttime sky, and, and by the, the help and with the help and the use of a powerful telescope, we can take these stars that, and sometimes, in some cases, are just enormous. For instance, there are some stars out there that are a thousand million miles in diameter, which for comparison's sake, is 1,200 times bigger than our own sun. But because of their distance from Earth, they seem small and fuzzy. And for a lot of people, that's what God is like. We know he's out there, but he's distant and he's fuzzy at best. And yet when you begin to praise him, when you magnify him, you bring the God who is out there and you draw him in and he becomes close so that his size and his beauty and his glory and his majesty can truly be appreciated the way that they're intended to be. And in a way, that's what happens every time we sing the Lord's praises. Something else I want you to note about Mary's song is is not only is it magnifying the Lord, but it's also extremely biblical. Remember who Mary is. She's just a teenage girl, yet her song reveals a great depth in understanding of Scripture. In fact, what we read here is it bears several similarities to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's, it's almost a copy of that song, which she had surely memorized. There are also many similarities to the song of Miriam after the Israelites had escaped the Egyptian army by passing through the Red Sea. Mary had done her homework. She loved the word of God, and she had latched on to these women who were heroes of the Old Testament. And her mind was completely saturated with scripture. She knew the word and it flowed out of her as she worshiped the Lord. There are no less than 15 direct and indirect quotations from the Old Testament in this song. So her her song is, is biblical, but it's also theological. I mean, she wasn't just waiting in the shallow end of theological truths here. She references the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. She'd rolled up her sleeves and done her homework. I mean, I know pastors who don't know much about the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants, yet here we're being schooled by this teenage girl. She also describes how her son will burst onto the scene and turn the systems of this world on their head. As she read through and poured over the passages in Isaiah that talk about the the messianic age, there is this great reversal that takes place, and Mary describes it in detail here, how in his kingdom she foretells that the haughty will be humiliated, the mighty will be demoted, and the meek will be promoted, and the hungry will be satisfied. Indeed, her words proved to be prophetic, did they not, about Jesus' ministry, Everything he did, everything he said was upside down and topsy-turvy compared to the value system of this world. He said the greatest in the kingdom would be the servants of all. He said the first should be last and the last will be first. He said if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. And if you lose your life, that's the only way to find it. He turned everything upside down. And Mary, even at this stage, knew in advance prophetically that all of that would take place through the work of her Savior. But not only was her song biblical and theological, Most importantly, note this, her song was also personal. She begins it by saying, I rejoice in God, 
my Savior. You see, Mary has been venerated in all circles, but particularly so in the Catholic tradition to a point that she wouldn't even be comfortable with, where she is seen as a co-redemptrix and, and where you have to go through her to get to Jesus. But notice here that Mary recognized her own need for salvation, and so her song is personal. And that's really what it looks like to view Christmas through Mary's eyes. She didn't know that it was going to be called Christmas. No, no, no. What she did know, though, was that her Savior was coming. And for Mary, it changed everything. But as we close this evening, I want to leave you with two thoughts, two profound ways in which Christmas changed or altered Mary. First, it caused her to live expectantly. She didn't know the exact day or hour that the baby was going to be born, but she knew he was coming. And with every passing day, the evidence grew and mounted that the time was drawing near. And eventually, who was on the inside made his way out of her into the world. And she lived expectantly. In fact, we use that language to describe someone who's pregnant. We say they are expecting, right? And like Mary, I believe God wants us to live expectantly. Paul talked about in Galatians 4 how he was travailing in labor until Christ be formed in you. You see, Jesus is being formed in you right now. And while Mary anticipated Jesus' first coming, we are looking forward to his return. She was living in expectation, in anticipation of his arrival. We live in anticipation of his return. She didn't know the day or the hour, neither do we, but we certainly know the times and the seasons. And can I just say, as I look around, as I survey the landscape, we are right there. I mean, we are in the midnight hour and Jesus is coming back soon. So we should look up for our redemption draws night. Amen. Mary lived expectantly, and Jesus changed that about her. And secondly, and I'll leave you with this, she also lived joyfully, right? When she learns this incredible news, this divine mystery, Christ is coming to make his home within you, it caused her to erupt in joyous praise. Well, let me tell you a, a mystery that the Bible talks about that is equally astounding and amazing. Paul described this mystery for us in 1 Corinthians when he talked about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus lived in Mary's womb temporarily. He dwells in your heart permanently. And one day, that is going to be consummated when you are brought into his presence and you are freed once and for all from the very presence of sin. But right now we're to live joyously knowing that Christ is taking root in our heart, that he's moving through our lives, that he's making an impact in this world, that he's using us to advance the kingdom and turn things upside down. You know what was said of those first Christians? They turned the world upside down with the truth of the gospel. And we should do the same. When we live with joy in our hearts in the midst of a chaotic world where, where nothing seems to be going right, it causes us to stand out. When we have hope in a hopeless situation that stands out, we shine as bright lights. When, when we carry the gospel message into dark places, we bring the light of the message of Christmas and the hope of the glory of the gospel into those very environments. And we begin to transform the places where we are by the presence that we carry, just like Mary did.
Thank you, Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, we bless you tonight. We thank you for this incredible woman of faith named Mary. And we look at this familiar story through her eyes, and it causes us to marvel. You know, I think it said this, I think this is said of Mary three different times that she treasured these things in her heart. There was something about her that she just, when the wise men brought the gifts, she, she treasured that in her heart. And, and there was other instances, two other instances, I believe, in the Gospels where Mary saw what was happening and, and she just, she lingered in praise and worship. She treasured them. And Lord, I pray that we would treasure you in our hearts tonight and this weekend, that we would pause in the midst of the busyness of the season to recapture the glory and the majesty and the wonder of this mystery of the incarnation, that God became a man. And that man would then go on to live a perfect life and that he would die a sacrificial death. But then three days later, he would rise from the dead so that whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus tonight. The babe of Bethlehem became the savior of the world when he bled on the cross and then triumphed over the grave. And he's alive today. And his kingdom is coming. And his name is exalted. And someday soon he's going to return. And we live expectantly in the meantime as we await that day. But we have an opportunity to praise him now, to invite him into the home of our hearts, to become our Savior and our Lord. Mary said, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Have you bowed the knee and acknowledged Jesus as your Messiah and as your Lord and Savior yet? If not, I want to give you an opportunity to do that now. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and fellowship with him. God wants to remove your calloused, hardened heart of stone. He wants to replace it with a soft heart. He wants to take the rags of your guilt and shame, and he wants to replace that with a robe of his righteousness. He wants to write your name in the Lamb's book of life and give you the assurance that your last breath on earth will be followed by your first breath in heaven. All you have to do is put your faith in him. You say, it can't be that easy. Oh, but it is. He already did the work and he finished it. He accomplished it when he went to the cross. So if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If that's the desire of your heart, I want to lead you in a prayer. You can just pray this prayer together with me out loud and just mean it from the bottom of your heart and Jesus will come into your home, the home of your heart and he'll change you from the inside out. Those of you who know and love the Lord, let me invite you to say the prayer as well, just as a way of reaffirming your love and renewing those vows of commitment to your king. Say, dear Jesus, I love you. Thank you for taking my place and bearing my sin and conquering the grave. I give you my heart. I receive your forgiveness. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to follow you all the days of my life 
till I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.